You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. We're going to be reading Acts chapter 25 through to 26. And in the Blue Church Bibles, you can find that on page 1122. On the Blue Church Bibles, that's pages uh, 1122. It says this. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favour to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me. And if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving of death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had the, an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. 
But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man, the whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death. But because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Then King Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth and that is just what I did in Jerusalem on the authority of the chief priests. I put many of the Lord's people in prison and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests about noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. 
Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you but all who are listening to me today may be become what I am, except for these chains. The king arose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Uh, so let me pray for us, and then we'll turn to that together. Father God, thank you that you speak, and you speak to us today with words that we desperately need to hear. Give us open ears, give us soft hearts. Give us receptive wills, we pray, for your glory. Amen. We do have uh, Acts 25 open in front of you. Uh, And let me say at the outset, don't you feel a little bit sorry for Festus? Uh, I mean, what an unfortunate name he has. He's called Porcius Festus. I mean, I can't imagine what his parents were thinking when they gave him that name. And here in Acts 25, we find Festus caught between a rock and a hard place. It's the late 50s AD, and Festus has just succeeded Felix as governor of Judea. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you would have seen that we have started to go through the five trials that Paul faces as we reach the end of the book of Acts. And at each trial, Paul 
and his message are vindicated. At first, there was the mob in Jerusalem, that's Acts chapter 22. Then there was the Sanhedrin in Acts 23. Then he's transferred to Caesarea in chapter 24, and he is put on trial before Felix, the governor. Now, Felix, he could find nothing against Paul. But he decides to keep Paul in prison for two reasons. Reason number one... Paul knows that, uh, rather, Felix knows that if he lets Paul go, the Jews will go mad at him. And they're really cross already about his governorship, and he just wants to have an easy life. So he wants to keep Paul in, reason, in prison for that reason. But secondly, we're told, verse 26 of chapter 24, that Felix was hoping that Paul would give him a, a bribe, a bung. You see, Felix was corrupt. He was crooked. And because of his corruption, Paul remained in jail. Which left Festus with a problem when he arrived on the scene. The Jews in Jerusalem, they are baying for Paul's blood. They want him, verse 2 of chapter 25, they want him to stand trial in Jerusalem. But as Festus hears this, he, he smells a rat. Perhaps he'd heard about the previous attempts to kill Paul. Or, or maybe he'd got wind about the current plot. Verse 3 of chapter 25. Whatever the reason, Festus insists that Paul stays here in Caesarea and stands trial before him, before Festus. The only problem, verses 6 to 9 is that Festus doesn't have a clue about Jewish cultural law. He's hearing all these accusations being made against Paul about him breaching the Jewish law, and Festus is lost. He, it is beyond his competency. And so he suggests that Paul be tried by the Jews down in Jerusalem. But Paul refuses that. And verse 11 he exercises the Roman right of provocatio. That's the right that every Roman citizen had to appeal their case and to ask for it to be heard by the highest court in the land, the court of Caesar in Rome. But this gives Festus a new problem. I mean, picture the scene. We're in Rome. We're in the forum in Rome, the, the political capital, the Roman Empire. And Emperor Caesar, he is sat at his great marble desk, organising how to rule the entire world. And then the Apostle Paul is led into the palace. Who's this bedraggled fellow coming into my presence? The centurion says, uh, his name is Paul. He's, he's been sent to you by, by Festus, governor of Judea, to stand trial. And what is this man's terrible crime, Caesar asks. Uh, uh, it must be here somewhere. He, he must have given a note about what he's on trial for. No, Festus has said nothing. Bring Festus to me, Caesar says. Festus would have been toast if he delivered Paul to Rome without any charges and any evidence whatsoever. 
But the problem, the problem is that the case was beyond Festus's competency. So what could he do? Well, Festus's prayers are answered here in verse 13 as King Agrippa and Bernice arrive in Caesarea to pay their respects. You see, Agrippa was a puppet king. He was massively compromised. Rome allowed him to rule in neighbouring Lebanon. But having grown up in Judea, Festus reasons that Herod Agrippa must know all the Jewish law and customs himself. So he'll be able to figure out what this kerfuffle over Paul is about. And so Festus asks Agrippa to work out what Paul's done wrong so that Festus can find charges that'll stick. And so verse 23 of Acts 25, another trial begins. Agrippa and Bernice, they enter the courtroom with great pomp and fanfare. Their hope is to find a charge and impress the new governor, Festus. Festus enters, his hope a way out of his predicament. And then Paul enters. What's his hope? I don't know about you, but if, if I was Paul in this situation, I'd be pretty ticked off by this point. I mean, he's hardly received Rolls-Royce justice at the hands of Rome. And, and the intent of this trial is pretty clear, isn't it? They want to make something stick on him. I'd be pretty cross if that was me. It would seem like a corrupt justice. I wouldn't want to be there. I'd be angry. But look at how Paul begins in verse 2 of Acts 26. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today. Fortunate. He's not fortunate. He's about to get shafted. Why? Why does Paul feel fortunate? Well, look at the end of the speech. The end of chapter 26, verse 28. Agrippa asks, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian. That's it. That is why Paul is super excited to be back in court again. Because it gives him an opportunity to share the gospel once more. To, to evangelise, to persuade King Agrippa and to persuade everyone else who is there in court of the truths of who Jesus is and what he came into the world to do. That's what we're going to be thinking about this afternoon. Paul's speech in chapter 26. And I'm going to ask two questions for us today. Question one, are you persuasive? Question two, are you persuadable? So first up, are you persuasive? If you're a Christian, are you persuasive when you share the good news of Jesus with someone? What is it that makes something persuasive take exercise for example take going to the gym 
Now, now scientifically, I can demonstrate to you that going to the gym three times a week and doing at least 20 minutes of cardiovascular exercise, I can show you scientifically that that improves your health. It, it reduces your blood pressure. It lowers your weight. It, it reduces the likelihood of heart disease. So rationally, I can show you that going to the gym is good for you. But you might still not be persuaded to go to the gym tomorrow morning. Why? Well, because you've been to the gym before, and you know that the gym leaves you feeling terrible, not great. You see, persuasion is not simply about making a logical argument that wins the mind. Persuasion is about winning hearts and emotions too. And there's a third element of persuasion. Something is persuasive if it rings true with our experience. Well, Paul's speech in Acts 26, it is a masterclass in persuasion. It works on the mind, the heart, and the experience. It shows that the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is plausible, historically verifiable, and that it works. First up, Paul shows that Jesus' death and resurrection is plausible. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, plausible? I think not. Everyone knows that it is implausible that someone called Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. I mean, you can't get more implausible than that, can you? Well, take a look at how Paul begins his argument. It's there in verse 6 of chapter 26. He says, And now, it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible? that God raises the dead. Paul says, he starts by saying, why would you find it incredible that someone rose from the dead? Now, he is not saying that it is normal. He's not saying that it is natural for someone to rise from the dead. The natural way for humanity is to end up in the grave for our heart to stop beating, our limbs to stop moving, our flesh to slowly decay in a coffin. But that's the natural way for humanity. But right from the off, this book we've got here, it anticipates that God will raise the dead, right from the very beginning. So it's there, third chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, the, the sentence of death is pronounced on Adam and Eve, but instead of them dying immediately, physically, they're given animal clothes to cover their shame. An animal dies in their place. Then just two chapters later, we get to Genesis chapter 5. There's a long list, a genealogy of, of names, a family tree, and the thing you notice after each name in the account of that person, you read... And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. But there's one name that sticks out, Enoch. This wonderful exception, Enoch, who we read, walked faithfully with God 
then he was no more because God took him away. This hope, this expectation of a resurrection of the dead, it is there in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham is told to, to take his, his only son, Isaac, and to sacrifice him. And, and that's an unthinkable thing, but we read that Abraham did it. And Hebrews chapter 11 tells us why. It was because Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. The hope's there with Moses. Moses, he eagerly expects to enter the promised land even though he dies before he does. He's expecting that to happen. King David in Psalm 16, he knows, he says, that he will not be abandoned to the grave. The prophet Isaiah, who looks forward to a day when there will be no more suffering, pain or death. The prophet Ezekiel who prophesies life to dry, dead bones in the wilderness. Resurrection, it is not natural in this sinful, broken world, but it is plausible. It is what every book of the Bible is pointing towards. That's why Paul ends his speech in verse 22 of Acts 26 like this. He says, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. People sometimes misunderstand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New. They they hear Christians say that that Jesus was the end of the Old Testament. And they think that means that, well, you know, we can tear out two-thirds of the Bible. We can get rid of the Old Testament because it's been done away with. It's been abolished. It's been finished by Jesus. But, you know, that, that word end, it can mean two different things. It can mean abolish, that's true. It can mean abolish, get rid of, end. But it can also mean to complete. And that's what we mean when we say that Jesus was the end of the Old Testament. He he fulfilled it. All that he is and all that he did is consistent with the Old Testament, and indeed, all of it is a fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. That is why resurrection, although it's unnatural, although it breaks the laws of nature, resurrection is entirely plausible. It is consistent with everything that came before. Now, you do not get that with other religions and other worldviews. Take Islam. I'm chatting regularly at the moment with with a Muslim man. And what we're doing is we're comparing Christianity and Islam. And one thing that's been really striking to both of us as we've looked at both religions is how Christianity and Islam differ in the way that they interact with other religions and other worldviews. As we've seen, Jesus claimed to fulfill everything 
that came before him in the Jewish scriptures. He claimed to be entirely consistent with it. Islam, on the other hand, claims that everything before it was wrong and that the Quran is right. So they look at the Jewish Torah, and the Jewish Torah speaks about Abraham sending away Ishmael and keeping Isaac. But the Quran says, no, that was wrong, that's a mistake. They, they changed that. Actually, Abraham kept Ishmael and sent away Isaac. And they say, well, well Christianity, Christianity's wrong. You, you've read the Bible, but actually, Jesus didn't die on the cross, even though that's the main climax of the whole Bible. What really happened was Barabbas... Last minute, substitute for Jesus. He's the one who died on the cross. Jesus didn't die. Prophet can't die. The message of Islam is that, that what came before is wrong and this is really what happened. The good news of Jesus is so very different. It's about fulfillment. You know, it's also very different to contemporary Secularism. That's the mainstay of how people in Manchester think and act today. And we're told today in politics and in the media that you can have morality and you can have human rights while denying the existence of God. Atheistic foundations, they are sufficient for our society today, they say. But hardly anyone in the whole history of humanity has believed that to be true. And when one society tried to live it in the 20th century, the Soviet Union, it led to gulags and genocide. The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is plausible. It is plausible for a Jew like Agrippa, who knew the hope of life after death, that was written throughout the whole Old Testament. And it is plausible for us today. I mean, it, it makes sense, doesn't it? it? It makes sense the hunger for eternity that we all feel. In our heads, of course, we know the ultimate statistic, don't we? That one in every one person dies. And yet we have that innate sense that we were made for something more. That we're more than simply random organisms floating through space. The news of a God who brings life from the dead. Well, that's plausible. It rings true to our very deepest senses. Secondly, the good news is historically verifiable. This is Paul's appeal to the mind. So, so take a look at verse 24. Uh, Paul speaks about the resurrection, and Festus replies, You've gone mad, Paul! But Paul replies, verse 26, I'm not crazy. Uh, the king, the king you brought along here, he is familiar with these things. I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner do you see Paul's argument here King Agrippa he knows what I'm talking about he was there in Jerusalem when all of this happened you know Agrippa the guy who's here in Acts 26 he was the grandson of Herod the Great and Herod the Great was the king at the time of Jesus' birth 
So he was the one who ordered all the baby boys in Bethlehem to be killed. Oh yes, Agrippa had heard about Jesus. Grandpa Herod had told him. And Agrippa's uncle, also called Herod, he'd ruled Judea during the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. Agrippa would have been six or seven at the time that Jesus died and rose again. So, so Agrippa was there. He remembered his uncle searching high and low, doing absolutely everything possible to try and find the body of Jesus to show that he'd not risen from the dead. Agrippa remembered that. He he knew all about this. It was settled, verifiable fact. We tend to think about faith as believing something which is not demonstrable, which is not provable. So Buddhists, Buddhists believe that Buddha received enlightenment. Now you can't prove he did, but you can't prove he didn't either. Muslims, they believe that Allah spoke to Muhammad on the mountain in a cave through an angel. Can't know if he did. Can't know if he didn't. No one else was there. Modern science says that the universe began with a gigantic big bang. We believe that, but no one knows whether it did or whether it didn't because no one was there. The central truth of Christianity is completely different. The whole of Christianity, the whole of this book, it stands or falls on whether Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago. It either happened or it didn't. If it happened, this whole book I'm holding here, the whole of it from beginning to end, it can be trusted. If it didn't, then we can throw this away. It is not worth the paper it is written on. It's that simple. And that means, that means that Christian faith is not about blindly believing things that we have no evidence for. It's about following the evidence. It's about staking your life, staking your future, staking your eternal well-being on solid, historically verifiable facts. Have you done that? My friends, have you looked into the evidence for Jesus' resurrection? The eyewitness testimonies that are contained here. The the record of more than 500 people who saw Jesus risen from the dead at the same time. Now, one or two people could be having a psychotic episode, could be having a hallucination. That does happen. But it never happens that 500 people have a hallucination at the same time. And Paul claims that they were still alive. Check it out, he says. Do you know, 10 out of 12 of Jesus' disciples were executed on one simple charge. That they refused to deny that Jesus was risen from the dead. Now look, we might die for something that we're not sure whether it's true or not. 
But no one dies for something they know not to be true. And those first disciples, they knew for sure they'd either seen Jesus risen from the dead or they hadn't. And no one dies for a lie. Persuasive evangelism, it means showing that the resurrection is historically verifiable. But that's not enough, is it? I I mean, think about broccoli, Okay, broccoli is supposed to be good for me. Okay, planking, did you read in the news recently? Planking is supposed to be really good for you. Do a plank a day for one minute and you will be in a peak of health. That is supposed to be true. I've heard that. But does it actually work? Truth is only persuasive when you see that it works. Which is why Paul gives his personal testimony as well. He testifies, verse 4 how he was a Jew of the Jews, how he was a Pharisee, how he tried to make himself right before God by opposing Jesus of Nazareth, by persecuting Christians even to the point of signing their death warrant. That's what he was like. Now, Paul, writing elsewhere, he gives us an insight into what was going on in his head as he was doing all this. In his letter to the church in Philippi, chapter 3, again, he, he recounts his works to try and be good. He recounts all of his, his religious qualifications. And then he says he came to the realisation that all those things he'd done, all those things he was, they were nothing. In fact, he's rude of that. He says all those things, they were dung. They were poo. Paul grasped that it was impossible for him to make himself good enough for God. Despite his very best efforts, he remained a condemned sinner. Which is why his experience on the road to Damascus, recorded there in Acts 26, is so earth-shakingly transformative. You see, he met with Jesus. Jesus who opened his eyes, who shined his light into the very darkest shadowy places of Paul's life. Verse 18, who offered him freedom from sin and from Satan and offered him forgiveness. We live in a culture that despises forgiveness. Our culture sees forgiveness as being weak, as turning a blind eye to abuse and injustice. Yet each of us, deep down, we know that we need forgiveness, don't we? from ourselves and from others. We know there are things we're ashamed of, things we dare not even say out loud. And Jesus offers that. He offers free and complete forgiveness, which doesn't turn a blind eye to abuse and injustice, but takes the punishment for that injustice and abuse upon himself on the cross. That is the place where where justice and forgiveness were achieved simultaneously at the same time. And we live in a culture that's enslaved, don't we? I, I might not know you, but I know that you're enslaved to something. Maybe it's the mobile phone you find you can never put down. Maybe it's your reputation 
keeps you up at night worrying about losing it. Maybe you're a parent and it's your child and you just cannot face the possibility of living life without them. Or maybe you're enslaved to financial security and you will risk everything to protect it. All of us are enslaved to something and Jesus' resurrection means that we can be set free from those things. That is why the gospel is persuasive. It is plausible. It is historically verifiable and it works. You can see it in the life of Christians. So I need to ask you, Are you persuadable? In these three chapters, we see three different responses to the gospel. Uh, Back in chapter 24, we saw the response of Felix. Now we were told, look at chapter 24, verse 25. We were told that as Paul spoke about righteousness, self-control and judgment to come, Felix was afraid. You know, we feel fear when we lose control. It's why some of us feel fearful as we step on board an aeroplane because we're not in control of it. It's why we feel fearful when we get into the exam room and we open up that paper and see the questions because we are not in control of what is on the exam paper. It's why we feel fearful when we enter marriage. We're going into the great unknown where we are surrendering control of our lives to the other. Each of those things are about surrendering control. They're about trusting. And the gospel requires trust. The call, chapter 26, verse 20, it is a call to turn to God. To surrender control, to let God be God in your life. Is that what's holding you back today? You can see that the Christian gospel makes sense of the world. You can see that it is historically verifiable. You can even see that it works in the lives of other people, but you cannot let go of control of your life. You're full of fear rather than faith. Next, have a look at the response of Festus. Verse 24 of Acts 26, he dismisses Paul and says, Paul, you've spent so long in your ivory tower reading all your books that you've gone mad. Now, notice what's going on here. Festus himself is out of depth. He doesn't understand what Paul is talking about with Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. So he just dismisses it all and says, Paul, you've gone crazy. You you don't know what you're talking about. So easy to do that today. When I tell people I'm a Christian, the response I often get is a look of puzzlement. A Christian today? In the 21st century? I thought we'd all grown out of that. You must be a little bit crazy or something. But when I ask them what they know about Christianity, it soon becomes apparent that they know next to nothing. What's more, they don't claim to be an atheist, most of them. They claim to believe that there is some sort of God or spiritual power out there. But they don't know about him or it either. Please, if you're here this afternoon and you are not yet a Christian, don't dismiss what you're hearing today as simply craziness. 
things. I might be wrong. This book might be wrong. But I really do believe this. And I'm not insane. I really do believe that Jesus rose physically from the dead. That is plausible. That is historically verifiable. And it stands up to scrutiny. Now, I don't expect you to be persuaded immediately. I hope you might be. But I do expect, I do ask you to at least be persuadable. To have the intellectual honesty to look into this for yourself and to prove me wrong. Don't be like Festus. Finally, notice how Agrippa and Bernice respond. It's helpful to know a bit of their history. As I've said, Agrippa was in a long line of puppet kings. It was a compromised dynasty. The Herods, they were known for their religious, political, and moral corruption. And Agrippa, he himself was morally compromised. You see, Bernice, who arrives with him, Bernice was his sister. And almost certainly, they were in an incestuous relationship. Historians tell us that they tried to break it off again and again, but each time they came back to each other. And Agrippa and Bernice, they'd heard the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. They knew that it was plausible. They knew the evidence for it. They even had seen the power of Jesus' resurrection at the work in the lives of people. But they thought, verse 20, the thought of demonstrating their repentance by their deeds, the thought of leaving their relationship, well, that was just too much for them. The problem for Agrippa and Bernice was not that they could not believe in the resurrection because of a lack of evidence. It was that they would not believe in the resurrection because they could not handle the consequences of it being true. They were not persuadable. My friends, don't be like Agrippa. Look, I I don't know what is holding you back from going all in with Jesus this afternoon. I don't know what your fist is clenched around that you just will not let go of. I don't know what is the equivalent of that relationship for you. But I can tell you that verse 18 of Acts chapter 26, that will give you the power to let go of your clenched fist. Light can shine into your life. You can be set free. There is forgiveness. There is the promise of a fresh start, no matter what you've done. And whatever repentance requires you to leave behind, it's more than made up for by what Jesus gives you. Verse 18, he gives you a place among God's people. God invites you, he he invites you into his family to become a child of God, to call him father. Jesus was overcome by darkness on the cross so you could be brought into light. He was forsaken by his divine family so you could be made a family member. He left his place 
so that you could be given a place. Now, isn't that persuasive? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for all you have done for us. Thank you for the cross, for bearing our sin, for bearing our punishment in our place. Thank you for the resurrection, the promise of freedom from the penalty of sin, freedom from the power of sin, a place at your table, a welcome into your home, a place in your family. Thank you for your incredible grace for us. Amen.